This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Mass shootings dropped off pretty dramatically during the pandemic, possibly because people weren't gathering in churches or clubs and schools were closed. But a lot of people still died from gun violence in 2020, more than in any other year in at least the last two decades. And I'm speaking in this case specifically about murders and accidents involving guns, which killed nearly 20,000 people in the U.S. Another 24,000 people died by suicide with a gun. Washington Post journalist John Woodrow Cox has written a new book looking at the toll gun violence takes on kids. It's called Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. And John Woodrow Cox joins me now. Thank you for taking time today. Thanks so much for having me. Are a lot of the deaths I mentioned as a result of guns kids dying in America? Uh, you know, a lot of kids do um, die of gun violence, absolutely. Uh, you know, as a percentage, uh, you know, most uh, gun violence is the result of suicides. Um, but a large percentage uh, of kids uh, do die from, from gun violence. It's, it's become really one of the leading causes of death especially among teenagers. And a lot of that uh, has to do with kids just getting access to guns. So it's not always this idea of, uh, you know, school shootings, in fact, and mass shootings make up a tiny percentage of the uh, deaths among children uh, from gun violence. A lot of it is just kids getting guns uh, in their parents' closets and, and in their drawers and, you know, in gun safes that aren't secured, uh, which are totally preventable deaths. Mm. The stories that you tell in your book really focus on what happens to the kids who who would not be considered victims, quote unquote. Right. They 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 weren't right. shot. They weren't shot at. <laughs> they weren't even injured. Um, right. What made you start thinking about this aspect of gun violence in America, the sort of wider ripples of, of gun violence? So- yeah, it's a great question. And, and that really was the focus of the book was, you know, we so narrowly as journalists focus on uh, the people who get shot, the people who die. Those are the people who garner the headlines. But I wanted people to understand that the scope of this crisis is so much larger than almost anyone realizes. Even people who are really engaged on this issue, it's so much broader. And, and you know, a couple of examples, what sort of the thing that clicked for me on this issue first was uh, I went to South Carolina to write uh, a story about a little girl um, who had uh, experienced a school shooting there. This was a, a school shooting that almost no one remembered uh, because only one child died. And so it didn't remain in the national conversation that long. And uh, but these kids who were on the playground that day, who were at this elementary school, have suffered debilitating trauma, some of them, for years as a result of a shooting that lasted for 12 seconds. And again, only one child died. And, you know, we often think of those as, well, that's not that bad. But the truth is, uh, being in proximity to gun violence, losing a parent to gun violence, uh, these are all things that make these kids victims. And there was one thing that a, a therapist there told me that was just astonishing. There was a, a, he had been working with a little boy who was in the fifth grade at the school and the way that school worked is the upper grades were on the uh, higher floor. So this kid didn't hear the shots, didn't actually even know there was an active shooter, but as time passed, he had become convinced that this gunman, this teenage gunman was trying to kill him personally. And it had consumed him. He was having nightmares. Uh, he was having his own uh, bouts of trauma. And it just showed me that, you know, we don't look at this the right way. And so I set off to actually create a database of how many kids have been exposed to gun violence on their campuses since Columbine. And that number is now up to a quarter of a million. That's 250,000 kids who've been on campuses where there was an act of gun violence. Some percentage of those kids, I guarantee, even decades later, are dealing with that trauma. 
And that that database of half a million kids does not include the the children who are touched by gun violence uh, in their personal lives in different ways, just because of their neighborhood or because of a, a loved one, a sibling or a parent who is who dies by gun violence, either as a suicide or as a I mean, the database would be enormous if you were to include all of those children who had who had been touched by gun violence in some intimate way. Right. Right. Oh, it'd be so much larger. I mean, the the kids who are affected most by gun violence are not children in schools. It's children in their neighborhoods. It's the threat of a stray bullet. It's hearing gun violence in their neighborhood. You know, in the suburbs, parents will tell their kids, you know, to go out and play, get outside, stop playing video games. I've met many, many parents who tell their kids, uh, play video games, stay inside, because the risk of getting shot when they go to the corner store or walk to school or, or walk anywhere is so great that they would prefer their kids to just stay inside. And there is a toxic sort of stress that is created when uh, kids are constantly feeling vigilant. It's that sort of hypervigilance where they're constantly on guard. That actually shortens your lifespan. So, you know, the damage being done to kids in these cities where gun violence is an everyday thing is so much more profound than it is uh, really the school shootings that get all the attention. Your reporting actually led to a friendship that is at the heart of your book, Children Under Fire. Um, b- between a girl whose whose trauma stems from that South Carolina school shooting, and a boy whose trauma stems from the the, the murder of his father, mm-hmm. um, in 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 the kind of setting you were just describing, would you tell us just a bit about Ava and Tyshawn, and how their trauma brought them together? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a really extraordinary uh, story. I I had written uh, first about Tyshawn and. Um, you know, had been with him at his father's funeral, and, and I went back with him uh, to school when he went to return to school. And so I wrote this story about uh, what he had endured, and then I uh, was going to write this other story about the school shooting in South Carolina. This was back in 2017. And uh, the mother, Ava's mother, was reading the story about Tyshawn one day. Ava noticed uh, that she was getting emotional. And Ava actually initially thought that Ava had done something uh, to cause her mother to get upset. And when Ava asked, uh, Mary, her mother, told her a little bit about Tyshawn, uh, just kind of the basics, and then showed uh, Ava his portrait, his photograph. And Ava decided, this is very Ava, uh, she decided that he looked like he needed a friend. So she wrote him this letter saying, basically, can we be friends? Would you be my pen pal? And uh, she sent it to me so that I could then take it over to Tyshawn's house. Mm-hmm. And it was this uh, incredible moment where I also had a letter that uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor had written, Chief Justice, or uh, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor had written to Ava, or to uh, Tyshawn. And so I deliver both of these at the same time. And I'm trying to explain to Tyshawn sort of what a big deal it is for uh, someone from the Supreme Court to write him a letter. And he just didn't care at all. He was so enthralled with the fact that this little girl cared about him and wanted to be his friend. That's all he was interested in. So he re- reads this letter and rushes upstairs to write her back. And this just uh, begins a, a really deep friendship. They wrote back and forth for a long time. And they started sending each other gifts. And then they started FaceTiming and, you know, they would just uh, talk pretty openly about, um, you know, what they'd been through. And it just it was this really unique bond where both of them were sort of at their best when they uh, talked to each other. So, yeah, it's it's an incredible, uh, an incredible thing born of something really awful. Ava was was best friends with the little boy that was shot he was a wasn't he like a first grader who was shot was. and died yeah. on the playground at that school in South Carolina so Ava was in first grade very or, right. very young when this shooting happened um and and she what was what was the trauma what what has the effect of that been on her life help us understand why you know not having been shot but having known the child who was killed has really right. turned her life upside down it has. And, you know, even even now, uh, she's really not recovered. I mean, she um, she blamed herself a great deal 
for what happened. Uh, she she wasn't alone in that. A lot of the kids out, outside that day, you know, Jacob was the smallest boy in first grade. He was just this tiny little boy, and he was sort of everybody's kid brother. And they all felt a responsibility to take care of him. So when he didn't survive, there was a sense of guilt that I should have done something more. Ava felt that as well, that, you know, she had run. She was holding this cupcake because uh, it was a little boy's birthday, and she had taken off running and dropped her cupcake, and she felt like she should have waited for Jacob, which, of course, she couldn't have done anything, but in her mind, um, she thought that she should have, and she also dealt with enormous amounts of fear and anger, and, you know, she's, uh, she's you know, dealt with really serious consequences. She's, you know, harmed herself and uh, you know, hit herself and threatened to harm herself more seriously than that. And, you know, dealt with some really significant outbursts that she can't control. She's been through, you know, half a dozen therapists and a couple of different psychiatrists. And, you know, her parents are doing what they can uh, to help her get better. And, you know, one thing about it is that she is such a deep thinker, which I think in some ways has made this all more difficult for her. She very much sort of lives in her head. She's incredibly bright and empathetic. And I think that has caused her in some ways to linger uh, on these things in a way that maybe other kids wouldn't. So, you know, it's been really painful uh, for somebody who's gotten to know her really well to see how much um, she has struggled because she has so much potential. She's just a kid uh, who's just so bright. And, you know, she writes these letters to politicians and, uh, you know, trying to trying to get change. I mean, that's what she wants. She wants things to get better because of uh, what she's been through. I'm speaking with John Woodrow Cox, who's a reporter at The Washington Post, author of a new book called Children Under Fire, an American Crisis, looking looking at the effects of gun violence on children in this country. Now, not all children um, respond in the same way to trauma. And Ava and Tyshawn might be considered on the more extreme side Mm -hmm. of in terms of the way that it's really disrupted their life. I mean, is there something we can do to see fewer Ava and Tyshawns after a trauma like this, a, a, a gun violence episode? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, sort of two examples that I could offer. You know, one is uh, when we think about lockdowns. So that's a big sort of conversation in the United States is lockdown drills, which is the drills are often the focus. But um, did a deep dive on one year of, uh, of school, one school year, and found that more than 4 million children had been through actual lockdowns, not lockdown drills, but real lockdowns. That number, real number is probably closer to eight. This was, I think, in the 2018-2019 school year. And, and what would, what would um, prompt a lockdown? So the, the vast majority of them were caused by some sort of gun incident. And often that means there's a shooting uh, in the neighborhood. Maybe a bank is re- being robbed down the street. There's some sort of criminal act that's been occur- uh, happened uh, in the neighborhood of the school. Often it's a threat to the school. Somebody will write on social media, I'm going to go to such and such school and shoot it up. Right. And even if that doesn't uh, have any basis in reality, it, it leads to a lockdown. And, uh, there is a percentage, it's a small percentage, but certainly a percentage of those kids who go through uh, terror. I mean, and I know that because they they write their parents goodbye letters. They text their parents goodbye. They weep, uh, soil themselves. Uh, you know, kids have these really extreme responses to that. And it's because they are aware of places like Parkland. They're aware of places like Sandy Hook. They're aware of maybe shootings in their own neighborhood. So that is the really toxic sort of element about gun violence in this country is that we only think of it in these kind of like terms of who gets shot, how many people die. Well, it's millions of kids who are affected every year by gun violence and just in this one very specific way because they're aware of what all these other kids have gone through. They've seen it on the news. They've heard about it. They've read about it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it is, that to me is the part of this that we just constantly miss and, and that it's just so much larger. And to your point, uh, uh, most kids will not suffer from the sort of debilitating trauma that Ava and Tyshawn and some of the other kids that I write about in the book, um, uh, you know, have suffered. But, you know, one really great example, this little girl, uh, Sienna, who I write about, it was also their, at the school shooting in South Carolina. 
she's very well adjusted. I mean, she's, she never left school as Ava did. Ava had to leave school. You know, she stayed in school. She had, you know, parents who are really squared away and she's, you know, kind of talked about it. And I, I remember I went back a couple of years after to talk to Sienna again. And her parent, I had first talked to her parents and they were under the impression that she was fine. I mean, that was really it. So, you know, I don't, we don't think she thinks about it anymore. This isn't on her, on her mind. We think she's really moved on. And then Sienna came out and I asked Sienna if she thinks about it. And she went on to explain that she had come up with a very, very specific plan on what to do when, not if, but when the next school shooter showed up. Mm. She knew where she was going to hide. She knew who she was going to take with her. And she selected the spot because she was convinced that the shooter would not look there. She'd also concluded there was definitely going to be another shooting because of how long the school had been open. And she basically kind of done the math and said, well, before I leave school, there'll be another one because we had uh, one X number of years ago. And her parents were shocked. They were floored by this, that she was obsessing over this even all these years later. And this is a girl who seemed totally fine. Uh, but she wasn't, you know, this was still very much on her mind. And, and if you think then about the kids who hear gun violence in their neighborhood all the time, the way that they're thinking about it, uh, you know, it's just totally magnified. You know, it's it's a, it's on a whole different level for for them. So so what do we I mean, obviously, the the, the thing would be to stop the violence, but but. But short of that, what, what do we do? to what, what can we do to make the rippling effects you know, to, to sort of shrink the pond or the size of the ripples when right. when a violent event happens with a gun? So, you know, there's a few things. We're, we're not going to go from, you know, 40,000 plus people dying every year to zero. That That's not going to happen. You know, there's already uh, hundreds of millions of guns in this country. Um, they're going to stay. There are some things, uh, easy things, tangible things, kind of the low-hanging fruit that would make a really significant difference and save many, many lives uh, right away. One thing that is very seldom discussed on Capitol Hill, because it's not flashy, I guess, is that uh, our child access prevention laws. These are laws that just mandate that if you have a gun, you have to, you or you're you know, prohibited by law from letting that gun get in, in the hands of a child. Uh, those laws are proven to work. They save lives. They prevent kids from getting to them. A lot of it's just about education because, you know, many gun owners think you can educate a kid out of making a bad decision with a gun. That is absolutely false. Children get shot and shoot themselves and their neighbors uh, every day because they have access to a gun. And the parent thinks, I told, I told him not to touch it. He won't touch it. That is just false. The statistics uh, bear that out in every conceivable way. Uh, that would make a huge difference. Uh, frankly, uh, uh, universal background checks. And the reason that that would have an effect on kids is many of the guns that fall into criminal hands are guns that were bought through, you know, what we call straw purchasers. And those are people who go to weak sta- uh, states with weak laws, buy guns and bring them back to places like D.C. and Chicago and sell them. So all those shootings kids are dealing with in their neighborhoods in places like D.C. and Chicago those are often with, you know, illegal guns, illegally purchased guns. Uh, universal background checks would, would really curb that. And then, you know, what we need in terms of the lockdowns is there needs to be much more uniformity in terms of how these schools do this. Every district decides on their own, uh, you know, this is, this is what we're going to uh, do it this way and we're going to do it that way. And, you know, often they'll go into a lockdown, a full-blown lockdown, where they close the doors and they turn the lights off and all the kids hide under the desk when there is no imminent threat. It's maybe uh, uh, somebody heard a gunshot a mile away. The school doesn't need to do that. So, But there is no national standard. You know, there is none. Uh, there needs to be more national standards to say, you know, this is when we're going to do this and this is when we're not going to do this. Or, you know, there's different levels of lockdowns that kids can, that schools can go into and the level of trauma that a kid goes through when, you know, somebody locks all the doors and they can't go outside for recess is very different than when they're told to, you know, hide in the corner. But, you know, central to this entire debate, and it's so often overlooked, uh, and gun owners want this too, (laughs) we need to research what works and what does not work. 
uh, until very recently, the CDC was banned by Congress from studying gun violence. Only in the last couple of years has that changed. That has set us back as a society, as a country, by decades. We could know so much more about what works and what doesn't work. If things like smart guns work, which laws work, if something like an assault rifle ban would actually make a really significant difference. These are things that uh, we have not studied in earnest, and it's really all about politics. So we need to study these things so that everybody can sort of agree, get on the same page and say, hey, we're not going to take your guns away. We're not going to abolish the Second Amendment. But this is a thing that will save, you know, 10,000 lives a year. This is worth doing, right? But right now, we often don't even know what would work and what wouldn't work. John Woodrow Cox is a reporter at The Washington Post and author of Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. Thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. This is Top of Mind. Thanks for joining us today. On any given night in America, half a million people are homeless. And decades of work to end homelessness in this country have failed. What if we just gave newly homeless people several thousand dollars in cash, no strings attached? Would they squander it or use it to get back on their feet? A nonprofit initiative in Vancouver gave it a try, and the early results are promising. University of British Columbia psychology professor Jiaying Zhao studies poverty and led the research. She joins me now. Welcome, Professor Zhao. Hi, Julie. How much money did the participants in your study receive? Each of our participants uh, received $7,500. That's Canadian, right? Song. That's Canadian, Canadian yeah. money. So um, a little less than that in American dollars, maybe five something. Is that right? Five something, yeah. Okay, yep. okay. And they got it. It was a one-time cash transfer. Like here, or here's $7,000 in hundreds right into their hand? Or how did you do that transfer? <laughs> we actually uh, uh, gave, set up a free checking accounts uh, with a local credit union here. So they um, have the checking account, and we e-transferred the $7,500 into their checking account. Wow. Okay. Um, How did people respond to that? (laughs) That's a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of people couldn't believe it. They thought we were a scam. Mm. Uh, uh, Some participants were overwhelmed. Uh, We'd had participants cry on the spot when we told them the news. Mm. Um, Yeah. So the response was uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, And then, of course, we have a few participants who are completely stoic. They thought this is completely normal, and then they were not surprised by the cash uh, transfer. Uh, To live in that world, huh? What did did they do with the money? So uh, we tracked participants' spending over one year, and... um, so we actually saw we saw a lot of positive results of the cash transfer. So, for instance, we saw that a lot more cash recipients moved into stable housing faster than those who did not get the cash transfer. Um, so, by moving to housing faster, you are opening space for the shelter system. You're actually saving the shelter system uh, seven, you know, actually more than eight thousand dollars over one year per mm. person. Okay. So, the cost savings on social services was enormous. It was actually greater than the cash transfer itself. So that's really encouraging to see. Um, so where did they, on, on that point, other, let's pause on that yeah. point for a second. So they moved into stable housing faster, meaning that instead of staying on the street or with family or friends or, or even in a shelter, they like rented a place. They were able to just use that money to pay first and last month's rent. And Correct. Know. They okay. moved into a, ha- a place of their own. So either it could be market housing uh apartments or uh, some more subsidized housing, um, some more hotels. So they were no longer on the street or in a shelter. Okay. What else did they spend the money on? Did they, I mean, did any of it get spent on stuff that wasn't necessarily productive, whether alcohol, drugs, or maybe, you know, luxuries? Yeah, only a fraction. I mean, that's true for everyone, including me. I I spend money on these things, uh, uh, you know. So I, I think that that will be a fraction of the spending per month. Um, if anything, we we saw a thirty nine percent reduction in temptation goods spending. So temptation goods mean uh, alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes. 
um, what the cash recipients did with the cash is actually they reduced their spending on alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes over the course of one year by 39%, which is counter to a lot of assumptions we hold about people living in homelessness. Yeah. So they were spending less. By the end of the year, they were spending less on those things mm-hmm. than they were at the beginning of the year. Why would that be? Why, why would why would being able to have a whole bunch of money at the start of the year help you to make maybe better choices for yourself psychologically and physically? So this is where we think um, happens psychologically or cognitively. The cash transfer actually improves their cognitive function. So by that, I mean they are able to make better decisions for themselves um, over the long term. We actually saw improvements in cognitive function as well over the course of one year. Uh, in cash recipients. How can money so, make you help you make better choices? Haha, that's a great question. That's actually uh, our previous work, um, poverty, uh, the, the cognitive impacts of poverty. So if you're running short on money, if you're living in scarcity, uh, our research shows that your kind of your cognitive function measured by IQ and a range of cognitive tests, uh, you know, decline as a function of scarcity. So if I'm feeling poor or strapped for money, I actually don't make good decisions about money. So that's ironic. Mm. And that, pro- that perpetuates the cycle of uh, poverty. Is it, so what, is, is it because you're, like, so much of your mental capacity is tied up in just surviving? And so yes. you're not able to kind of think through the consequences of every choice you make? Exactly. Hmm. You are basically in that firefighting mode at all times. Huh. You're not able to really plan long term, uh, make kind of, you know, to us, we'll call them smart decisions. Uh, let's say increase our savings, make good spending decisions. Uh, under scarcity, those abilities are severely diminished. But so we're, we saw, sorry. But yeah, so, 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 but were any of these participants, I think sometimes, well, often when we talk about homelessness in America, um, a specific category of homelessness, the chronically homeless, come to mind. People who have mm-hmm. spent months, if not years, in and out of housing. Many of them have uh, mental illness, um, serious substance use disorders. Were mm-hmm. any of these people that you were used in this study from that category? Uh, No. So we screened uh, out participants with severe substance use, severe alcohol use, or severe psychiatric symptoms. Mm. So by by that, I mean, you have to score score above a certain threshold on our survey. Um, But we did include participants who were using. Um, If you have a a small to moderate level of use, that that will be in our, so that will pass our criteria, and then you will be in a study. Okay. Is that a reason why this study found success with so many of these participants? Is it important that the individual be able to do the things that you described, you know, in terms of getting back on your feet and getting into stability? Yes, I can't answer that because we don't have the data from what you call these chronically homeless or people with um, greater uh, needs. But you specifically screened them out. Why did you do that? Well, this is for um, uh, ethics purposes. So uh, this is the first study ever done uh, in the world. So we had to get ethics approval uh, for our study. And, you know, we did get a lot of pushback on the, from the ethics committee. And then um, I think as a compromise, we decided on the, this kind of high-functioning uh, subset of the homeless population. What was the ethical um, concern with giving 7,000 Canadian, 5,000 US dollars to somebody who maybe does have severe mental illness or has been the, long-term homeless? Yeah, so the concern is, well, this is this is not, I don't think this is grounded in any, any evidence, but uh, the concern is, you know, people with severe mental health symptoms uh, would not be able to manage the money properly. Mm. I think that's a combination of people's intuitions and uh, some data on, let's say, cognitive functioning with these some of these people. Uh, Do you so, think there's nothing there's there's no logic to the idea that I'm sure a lot of people have when I mean, even if you're going to give five dollars to someone who's panhandling on the street, so many of us have been told mm-hmm. don't give them money because they'll probably just use it on alcohol or drugs. 
Yeah. You know, you got to you got to send them to a shelter or give them a sandwich or something like they can't be trusted with money. Um, is there is there no like no logic to the idea that if someone has a serious substance use disorder and you give them five thousand dollars that it may actually just further drive that disorder? Um, I don't think this is well, I mean, there are cases uh, showing what you just described, like the mm. phenomena of squandering money away. But I don't think that reflects the broader homeless population in general, certainly not in Canada or US, because um, the vast majority of people in homelessness actually don't show these symptoms or show that level of uh, severe use. So um, in that sense, I think this approach, our approach could apply to actually the, the majority of people living in homelessness in US and Canada in terms of people who, who actually have, you know, uh, severe levels of addiction, substance use issues, or mental health challenges, uh, I think that's an open question, whether cash would indeed help them. Mm-hmm. Nobody has done that study. Uh, we don't have any data on that. But I think it's, it's an open question at this point. Tell us about one of the participants in your study, how they ended up homeless, what the money did for them. Oh, yeah. So we had, uh, we actually have 40% women in our sample. And what we typically saw in these uh, female participants was um, they had to flee their home from domestic abuse or physical violence. And that's why they ended up in the shelter with their, with their children. So a lot of them were single mothers. Um, and then, you know, they basically uh, had to abandon everything from home to, to, to seek safety in the shelter, which is ironic because the shelter themselves are, are actually not the safest space for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think quite a few of our participants were at the end of their shelter stay. They, were, they had to find another place to live. And that's when, you know, they received the cash transfer. Mm-hmm. And it was a very timely intervention for them where they can actually, you know, get, a, get an apartment, get, get their children into daycare, uh, buy a car and get back to work. So at the so end of 12 months, were they in a position where they... Things were stable. They weren't on the verge of ending up back in the shelter again. No. So again, the, ma- the vast majority of participants w- remained in stable housing at the end of twelve months mm-hmm. and beyond. Like you think that once the four thousand, the you know, the five thousand or seven thousand dollars ran out, that that they that they would be able to keep on going to stay out of homelessness. Yeah. Okay. Because um, because they they have other sources of income at that point. Mm. Who was paying for this? So our Pilot project was funded partly by the Canadian federal government. Hmm. Um, that was uh, a big chunk of uh, funding from them. And then we fundraised the rest from private donors and fun- foundations in Canada. And how many people got the money in your study? So we got 50 participants who received the cash transfer and another 65 participants who were in the control condition. So they did not receive the cash transfer. And how would a government be able to justify this expense? Um, I think they can justify based on the cost savings from our study, right? So the government invested, well, that's, they only provided uh, just less than half of the funding for the whole project. Right. But each but participant in a, received $7,500. In a theater, in, like if, if we were to think about, you know, if there's a, if there's a, a city out there thinking, all right, let's try the cash thing, you know, they'd mm-hmm. have to sell the idea of giving these large cash payments. Um, you know, the council would have to approve the local, you know, the community. What would be the pitch? What, um, h- well, how would they justify that money? I would say it's, money? it's extremely cost effective. It's probably the most cost effective, pro- cost effective approach to, to reduce homelessness, right? So, Think about the, so we did a cost-benefit analysis for our study. Each participant was, was given $7,500. At the end of one year, each participant generated $8,100 in cost, in savings of social service costs. So basically, meaning, meaning time that they an, didn't spend in the shelters or in the jails or at the yeah, soup kitchen, time I guess. not spend in the social services or the uh, uh, justice system um, Basically, that's that's savings from the government yeah. because these systems are largely funded by the government. But a government couldn't shut down its homeless shelters and just hand out cash. Like, would that? I mean, they'd still that's have to not, operate well, both. That's not, tr- that's not entirely true. One is there's an extreme shortage of shelters in the U.S. and Canada. So hmm. by freeing up a bed, that actually can save 
a lot more people, I think, I see. just in terms of lives. Yeah. Second, uh, if we can, you know, reduce or even end homelessness, then we no longer need shelters. So these spaces, um, infrastructure and staff can be, you know, uh, redirected to a better use, mm-hmm. right? Would could you could you accomplish the same thing? Help people to get into stability twelve months on, making um, better choices for themselves and their families. Could you accomplish that same thing by providing services and support other than cash? Let's say we don't want to give them seven thousand dollars, but we want to give them eight months of free rent. You know, in a in subsidized, you know, give them free rent in a subsidized apartment for a couple of months and um, some, you know, increased food stamps and, you know, to be able to meet their basic needs, but not have to give them cash, which I imagine would still give a lot of people pause. Yeah, I think those uh, approaches are not as cost effective. And to be honest, it's not um, it does not provide the greatest amount of freedom for the individual. So if I'd say, if you're homeless by some reason, would you prefer $10 or would you prefer a sandwich? Like uh, I, I would, ch- I would choose, I would want cash over, you know, food yeah, so or I could sometimes pick, even pick an apartment. Pick, yeah. Okay. So, so as you sure. mentioned, you know, the housing first approach was tried, you know, that was tried in both us and Canada where homeless individuals or individuals experiencing homelessness were provided with free housing. So that's been done. Now that approach, you know, has some promise. Uh, it's incredibly expensive. And the benefits of Housing First were nowhere close to the benefits we see with the cash transfer. That's that's one. Two, you can give them food stamps and, you know, food assistance, for instance, but that's only food. It's, it's that's severely limiting, right? So, so I, you know, how many sandwiches can I eat on a daily basis? Hmm. Uh, I, I just, I just think that we need to move away from these kind of distrust based approaches to, to homelessness and and moved into you know empowerment based and trust based approaches. Zhao Ying Zhao is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability. Thank you for taking time today to talk us through your work. Thank you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in today to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. When your kids refuse to put on a coat or insist on wearing shorts to school in the winter, are they just being rebellious because they know it makes you crazy? (laughs) They might say, I'm not cold, but that can't be true, can it? Well, it might be. Kids and teenagers have more of a certain type of fat in their bodies that changes the way they experience cold. Shingo Kajimura is a leading expert in this brown fat, as it's called, and he's on the line now. Kajimura is a professor of cell and tissue biology at the University of California, San Francisco. Professor, welcome. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks for having me. Why is it called brown fat as opposed to what? Yeah, brown fat is a unique fat cells in mammals, including humans, and the color of brown comes from iron in the mitochondria. So the iron uh, or mitochondria is a powerhouse in the cells. And then uh, more mitochondria means cells are more energetic. And then, then brown fat is one of the most mitochondria-rich cell type in mammals. And then color come from, actually, that's the word com- uh, color come from. So the example... So it's, it's actually another, brown. It, it actually it looks brown when you see it. It is. It, it is okay. brown. For example, they, they, you may imagine this. They get dark meat uh, of turkey. But it's actually why the color is dark, because partially from more mitochondria and heme. The mitochondria is a lot of ions in there. So the color of brown comes from those ions in the mitochondria. Okay. And um, all mammals have it, you say? Yes. Pretty much all mammals, particularly this is very abundant in small um, like animals, like mouse, squirrels, or hibernating animals. Oh. They uh, need this unique uh, brown fat uh, type of fat cells uh, that make heat without muscle shivering. And this is particularly important for those like hibernating animals or babies who need 
make more heat without uh, shivering your muscle. Wait. Adult humans mostly use muscle shivering. Shivering. Yeah. So we stay warm by shivering. Mostly in humans, actually, the muscle, when you go outside now today, mm-hmm. um, uh, the first response is that you shiver muscle to make heat. But you can't uh, keep shivering for a long time because eventually lactate accumulates in the muscle. Yeah. So that we have another way to make heat without muscle shivering. And that's what brown fat does. Okay. But brown fat is only in children? Is it not in adults? It's actually very abundant in, uh, in younger ages, particularly infants so probably have most, uh, uh, a lot of my, uh, brown fat uh, because they don't have enough muscle to shiver. But the, the amounts gradually decline with age. And around probably 40s to 50s, uh, many people start to lose brown fat, which is consistent with the timing that many uh, people um, start to gain little weight. It's an age-associated obesity where... Uh, your food intake or appetite remain the same, but energy expenditure uh, uh, goes down. So, oh. um, so brown fat, brown fat, um, how does it warm the body? Well, the um, so brown fat is actually in humans. Uh, we have brown fat near called the uh, neck, called supraclavicular regions, okay. and then this is a very efficient uh, uh, place to warm up blood into the brain. And then, uh, so the, the right next to the blood vessels, so the mark heat pipe, you can imagine this, is a, a heater right next to the water pipe. Oh, right. Okay. And so when a, when a baby or a child um, is, is not, is, is, you know, this experience where a lot of <laughs> parents have known their kid just doesn't seem to be as cold and you're like, but they should, why are they, why are they fine not bundled <laughs> up right now when I'm feeling chilled? Um, it, 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 they've got this brown fat that is generating heat more efficiently right around there. Are they mostly feeling warm right around their neck then, or is it? Is yeah, it... so the babies have a, a lot of brown fat near the, cold, the, the back of the, um, just like in the shoulder, between the shoulders. And then uh, and gradually this decline, but adult humans have a lot of brown fat near the neck to uh, uh, nearby spinal cords as well. And then um, the, really, this is the um, important um, uh, part of the um, determining your metabolic rate, meaning that if you have more brown fat, your, your energy expenditure as a, in general is higher. And which is interesting that uh, the, um, a lot of studies now show that amounts of brown fat um, shows negatively correlate with obesity. So it means that if you have more brown fat, you tend to be lean and more healthy, Whereas if you have less or no brown fat, many people tend to be more uh, obese or metabolically not healthy. I want to I want to talk about that connection. What what how exactly brown fat influences your metabolism? But but first, um, one other thing I want to make sure I'm clear on here: when when children have more plentiful brown fat, and it's especially focused between their shoulders, around their mm. kind of the um, the neck and upper torso area, does mm. that mean that they're feeling the heat that's being generated, they're feeling it right there, like they always have hot shoulders? Or is that heat, like, moving to other parts of their body? They're moving out to the body. Almost like a, you, you imagine this is someone put the scarf on, right? Putting a scarf uh, around your neck doesn't necessarily uh, uh, warm up your body, but the, you're, you're tricking the brain that you feel, the uh, warm up the blood into the brain that you feel your, uh, uh, your body temperature is a little warmer. Right. Oh. So they, of course, preventing heat loss as well as warm up the blood into the brain such that you feel you're tricking brain that way. OK. It doesn't necessarily mean that your body warm up. Right. Oh, so kids, <laughs> kids might actually have really cold feet or fingers, but they're <laughs> yeah. maybe they're experiencing cold differently than a than a 40 year old adult might experience that same yeah. cold. Yeah. Yes. OK. All right. So now to the metabolism question. So so brown fat burns, makes more heat, but does that because it burns more calories than regular yes. fat does? So it's almost like uh, the light bulb makes heat. So that they're energetically very efficient that they take a lot of energy like glucose or fatty acids or amino acid and they convert this to energy. But the efficiency is so uh, low that, it, that uh, the, uh, most of the energy is converted to heat instead of making energy, which is called ATP. 
So, this um, is what the brown fat does. So it's yes. very hungry for um, very hungry. For, 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 for fuel, for calories. Exactly. It's almost like a bat, uh, the car engine, where you know, eat a lot of gas, but engine heats up instead of running. Oh, Okay. And so that's helpful in maintaining body temperature when you can't mm. shiver if you're a mouse or an infant or a hibernating animal. Um, right. As you get older, then, um, what, why does, h- how does a, a, like an adult human make energy then, yeah, typically? So it, um, the, there are other ways to prevent uh, heat loss or, or keep you warm. One way is to um, um, build white fat around your body to make as an insulator. So oh. that instead of making heat, you build fat to prevent heat loss. So that they, uh, often right, uh, uh, we uh, use the, when you go um, older uh, and then you start to lose brown fat, we tend to use that alternative way to uh, build up more white fat around your belly mm. or to prevent heat loss. Which we're not doing intentionally. It's just that that's a body's adaptation. It's, a, it's your exactly, body's it's response. It's adaptation, exactly. Okay. Okay, which could explain why um, it's easier, why a lot of people, people put on weight uh, in middle age, even though they're doing the same things they were doing when they were younger. Right. Um, okay. And then, uh, but, but, but you say brown fat, wh- I mean, why would the brown fat go away? Do we know why it um, disappears as people there age? Are, yeah, there are multiple theories. For example, um, um, there's certain stem cells, are, uh, numbers going down. But there are, this is the one of the really extensive you know, active research area was to why we start losing brown fat in age. But the newer sort of studies, exciting part of this is that uh, more we learn about this, it's getting clear that we have, we can, we have a capability to regain brown fat, um, and it's called browning of a white fat. In other words, those energy storing white fat can be converted to energy uh, dissipating brown, we call really? fat. And yes, yeah, so that's the uh, more attractive way to sort of combat obesity How or do you, metabolic disease. Right, right. Because so having more brown fat correlates to having less obesity and less diabetes um, because the brown fat is just so hungry for, I mean, you might be hotter all the time. Like you'd right. have to like wear less clothes or turn your heater right. down because you're hotter if you have more brown fat. But it also means that your body is just burning a lot of en- or- energy. Sort of or, instead or of calories. storing fat, so that those fat cells start to burn energy uh, uh, to right um, uh, to make heat, um, mm. and uh, so that's a, a, a very attractive model uh, in an area of obesity or diabetes research. So, and how do you? What is the mechanism that turns that can? Because you lose brown fat, you can't regrow it, but you might be able to turn white fat into beige fat, <laughs> as yep. you called it, which yep. works similar to brown fat. What right. is the mechanism so, to make that conversion? Well, so are the the uh, there are sort of the, this is another very exciting every research in really the front line as to what uh, makes convert white fat into brown fat. But I can tell you. Uh, uh, there are multiple interventions that have been implicated. For example, chronic cold exposure, not only once, but repeated cold exposure, let's say 65 degree Fahrenheit for two hours every day for up to like 10 days or even longer, then uh, many people start to regain active thermogenic brown, we call beige fat. Um, inducing browning white fat. Get being cold, being cold for an extended period of time can yes. actually turn your white fat into brown fat. Yes. Or, or um, brown-acting fat. Browning of white fat. It's being known in mammals, like as mouse models, huh. rat models, but the, uh, for the last few years, and in, in multiple studies show that this can occur in humans as well. Wait, so, well, 60, 65 degrees isn't that cold. Not I mean, that's that not cold. freezing. <laughs> yeah. So this so, is the temperature that you feel a little chill, mm-hmm. chilly but it doesn't trigger muscle shivering. So if you go down like a much colder temperature, then we normally start to shiver, and it's obviously not comfortable. But about 65 degree or something is probably uh, sufficient enough to 
uh, trigger this thermogenic program. As long as, but what if you bundle up? Put, I mean, that's what I usually do. Sometimes I'm being a cheapskate and I'll keep my thermostat at like 65 in my house in the winter. But then I'll like put a bunch of sweaters on and sit underneath a, a, a you know, a, a, a quilt on the couch. <laughs> so am I counteracting the effect? Like in order to get, you know, to have the browning take place, do you have to Probably. sit there basically without any sweater on and feel cold yeah, for two hours? T-shirt, right? Probably that's two hours. And most people feel uncomfortable comfortable with that. But if you repeatedly do this, surprisingly, people start to get adjusted to that. And then many people feel less cold. Um, uh, uh, Okay. And and you're actually um, converting white fat into brown fat. And then does that, in addition to keeping your power bill down and, (laughs) and helping you to be more comfortable in cold temperatures, that also changes the way your body might be dealing with calories? Like it could help you lose weight. So that's yeah, that's the implication. And then uh, you may, you mentioned earlier that um, stay out at cold. Actually, I I grown up in the suburb of Tokyo, and then uh, my grandmother often told me this. You know, in the winter time, stay outside, and then uh, play outside, and then uh, or keep. And this will keep you away from doctor. And then hmm. I, I used to hate it. Uh, I thought this was a very uh, mental discipline-related <laughs> comment. It's but, torture, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, may not be. You know, uh, I think it's that it may be true that in some extent, a chronic cold exposure, uh, not only uh, besides the mental discipline, I think induces browning of white fat, and then also this actually keep uh, uh, your metabolic rate a little higher, hmm. as well as to keep um, improved metabolic health. So overall, I think this is not a bad idea. We, we look at other culture, Scandinavian countries, Russians, actually many, many cultures adapt that cold exposure uh, in, in the wintertime. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to know it doesn't mean you have to take a polar plunge into ice, you know, glacier <laughs> water. So you can just turn your thermostat down a bit and shiver. <laughs> <Never. You're> right. <laughs> Shingo Kajimura is a professor of cell and tissue biology at UC San Francisco studying brown fat. Fascinating research. Thank you very much for taking a few minutes with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015, and there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear-cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, Huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.